0: From Public Radio International, this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Tuesday, October 23rd. I'm Marco (music) Werman. Romney and Obama sparred over foreign policy last night, but they didn't mention Europe, Mexico, or climate change. We'll unpack the missing topics from the final presidential debate. One subject that did come up, bayonets. Don't laugh, they're still around. Even today, you know, if you're cornered and in a ditch, it seems like a useful thing to have. And later, the Mormon church seeks to grow by converting Latinos.
1: Most churches are growing through immigrants. As I like to say, white folks don't like to convert anymore. MRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach the public life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. And by WGBH, producer of Nova Science Now. How does someone become a genius? Is it all in the DNA or does it come with hard work? Can it be that everyone has untapped genius waiting to be discovered? Find out on Nova Science Now's How Smart Can We Get? Wednesday night at 10, 9 central on PBS.
0: I'm Marco Werman. This is the world. You've likely heard a lot of people today dissecting the comments from last night's final presidential debate today on the program. We're going to dissect some consequential issues that were not mentioned last night. Let's start with a snapshot of what was noticeably absent from three of our editors here at the world. Peter Thompson, you're the world's environment editor. What did you notice
2: missing from last night's debate? Well, you won't be surprised to hear from me and a lot of other folks that it was climate change. Climate change is already emerging as a huge destabilizing force around the world, and it's only going to get a whole lot worse, especially if whoever's the next president doesn't make a much more serious effort to reckon with it than President Obama or any other president, for that matter, has done so far. I mean, we're talking about coastal flooding that's going to inundate cities around the world and create millions of climate refugees. We're talking about major disruptions to food and water supplies that we're already starting to see. Um, And this is something that's very much even on the Pentagon's radar as what they call a threat multiplier around the world, but not a peep from the candidates or the moderator. And that's just the nutshell version. We'll hear a lot more about it later in the program.
0: All right, Peter. Thanks a lot. Let's move to the world's William Troop, who keeps close tabs on what's happening south of the U.S. border in Mexico. William, what did Romney and Obama have to say about Mexico last night?
3: Nothing.
4: Nada, if you want to get bilingual about it. <laughs> not um, one word. Not one word. And part of that um, responsibility for that has to go to the moderator. Uh, Bob Schieford of CBS News obviously didn't think that Mexico rated among the top foreign policy topics that matter the most to this country. But both candidates really failed on their own to bring it up. They had ample opportunities for that. And they failed to connect on an issue that matters a lot to a key voting group, Latinos, many of whom are uh, Mexican-Americans. I think neither uh, Romney nor Obama would deny that the drug war in Mexico with tens of thousands of people killed in the past six years represents a huge threat to American security, especially if, as is being increasingly reported the drug cartels are extending their reach, their tentacles, north of the border as well. So the two candidates both left us with the impression that they either don't care about this issue, or that they have no new proactive ideas about how the u s can deal with it, and in the end it 's a negative for both
0: well we 'll hear more about the Mexico issue from Mexico in a few minutes the world 's William troop thanks a lot finally the world 's clark boyd you 've been following the European economy story. Any mention of that last night
3: well, Marco, aside from a couple of passing mentions of Poland and a couple of uh, we don 't want to go down the road to Greece kind of moments, Europe was notably absent from the debate last night. You know, you've got this financial crisis in Europe that's been going on for two years now. It's one of those cases that never seems to really get solved. You know, I was really surprised that there wasn't at least one question about how the tanking economy in Europe, one of America's biggest trading partners, was not mentioned at all last night. There was not a question about it.
0: The world's Clark Boyd, thank you so much. Let's now unpack the Europe issue. There was one mention of Europe last night by President Obama. Here it is.
1: And Governor Romney, our alliances have never been stronger in Asia, in Europe in Africa, with Israel, where we have unprecedented military uh, and intelligence cooperation, including dealing with the Iranian threat.
0: That was it. Besides that and the standard dig about ending up like Greece, Europe was absent from the 90-minute discussion. Willem Post is with the Klingendahl Institute for International Relations in The Hague. He happens to be in Boston this week, so he joins us in the studio. I mean, it's pretty extraordinary. In modern times, we have this Europe being used as almost a slur, like it's a problem child in discussions, especially during this presidential campaign. Um, Did you get that sense as you watched the debate last
5: night? Well, I was surprised, and it was a bit shocking. Uh, Well, you're not that stupid as Europeans. We understand there are hot spots in Asia, in Northern Africa, the Arab world. But if you talk for 90 minutes about foreign policy and, well, Europe was almost not mentioned. And we are strong allies. We we share the same uh, values. We have the the same basic core interest. And and let's be honest, we work together with the U.S. uh, concerning sanctions uh, against uh, Iran, for instance. So where were we? Well, no doubt that the European economy has been a major story with, with global
0: proportions for the last couple of years. Tell us what you were hoping. hoping to hear from uh, Obama and Romney last night on Europe.
5: Yeah, but what I really hoped uh, was that we have to do it together. And it's crystal clear that there is uh, some some Europe blaming. Uh, It's now the the, the euro crisis. Uh, That's the reason for uh, all the economic problems now here in the Western world, here in the U.S. But, well... It all started here in the United States with the banking crisis, eh, the, the mortgages, uh, uh, the, the housing markets. Going and, back
0: to 2008
5: and Lehman Brothers collapsed. Definitely. And that was in September 2008. And, and, and we understand that um, this is an interconnected world. So d- – d- it's natural to to to, to be partners. So, part- so
0: connect those dots for us, Willem. I mean, what, remind us why, for Americans
5: in the U.S. economy, Europe is so critical right now. Yeah, if you if if you take all those countries together, we are quite a market. And uh, uh, for instance, my country, the Netherlands, we are the third investor here in the United States, and we have we have huge interests from this side. Uh, at uh, at the Atlantic. And at the other side, uh, for, for trade reasons, uh, uh, okay, it's interesting uh, to have your trade with China, uh, but Europe is also a very important economic bloc.
0: And there's NATO as well, you know, being the force that is currently in Afghanistan with uh, U.S. troops and the force with which Gaddafi and Libya was removed from power. I mean, that's another side of Europe for which the U.S. needs to Maintain support, presumably, for the next four years. Yeah, not look,
5: at, look at the, uh, well, the success, apart from the terrible tragedy in, in Benghazi, of course. But, but look what happened in Libya. We, we took our responsibility. Yeah? Countries like Italy and France and, well, the president called it leading from behind. Well, The U.S. was still very influential, of course. But we did it all together. And look at the sanctions uh, against Syria. Uh, that's definitely not only an American affair. The Europeans are also involved. Look at, at discussions concerning uh, North Korea or Israel and the Palestinian Authority. The Europeans are on board. So now nah, uh, we were uh, disappointed that we were not mentioned as, uh, as strong allies and working together with the United States.
0: Willem Post with the Klingendahl Institute for International Relations in The Hague. Thanks for coming in today. Thank you. As we mentioned earlier, Mexico wasn't mentioned in the debate either. That surprised analyst Sergio Aguayo in Mexico City.
6: I was shocked. I was shocked by the indifference of uh, President Obama and Governor Romney. It was uh, unbelievable for me.
0: Right. Well, you tweeted last night. uh, They talk about a humanitarian tragedy in Syria, 30,000 deaths, and still don't say anything about Mexico, some 60,000 as a result of the drug war. Why do you think, given the numbers of Latino voters here, was this important relationship between the U.S. and Mexico overlooked.
6: The American establishment uh, tries uh, to evade as much as they can the humanitarian tragedy we are uh, suffering because they don't have an answer, they don't, they don't have a solution, and it is better to ignore the tragedy, even if it's at your border, than to start talking about uh, a problem that, uh, for which they don't have a solution.
0: Is humanitarian suffering and tragedy
6: just a tough political sell? It has many elements. On the one uh, part, the drugs that come from the south, from Mexico to the U.S., and then the U.S. that sells the weapons uh, to Mexico and Central America, and that is creating violence. And that is so intricate and so complicated for uh, the American establishment that they rather keep quiet. The other is uh, the usual patronizing of Americans that take Mexico for granted. We are the back part uh, of the superpower.
0: Sergio, what would you have wanted to hear from either candidate?
6: We in Mexico have a war, and that war is having and will continue to have consequences for American national security. I would have expected the recognition that something horrible is going on uh, south of the border, and that... uh, they are starting to think and to look alternatives and to work uh, with the Mexican government. I mean, one knows that politicians have to be very careful and sometimes very general, but at least the recognition that of what is going on in Mexico. And they were more, more worried about Pakistan than to Mexico let me ask
0: you about Mexicans' opinions of the two contenders here in the U.S. presidential race. Uh, in 2008, pollsters from a group called World Public Opinion found 54 percent of Mexicans were pro-Obama. That was in 2008. Now it's 43 percent. How do you explain that dip?
6: President Obama, I mean, he, he has the appeal of his the color of his skin.
0: For Mexicans?
6: Yes, for Mexicans. I mean, he's more like us than Governor Romney. We Mexicans have a problem, I mean, uh, We don't follow as we should what is going on in uh, in the U.S., and perhaps that explains American indifference, because our presidents are very humble when uh, talking to the Americans about our problems. And we Mexicans uh, tend to forget that Americans uh, listen to those who defend their rights, and we have not been forceful enough to bring our case to the American people and to the American establishment. From that perspective, we tend to see the presidential uh, elections uh, in the U.S. as something alien, as something that does not uh, affect us. I am of the opinion that uh, we should uh, pay attention to the elections, and we should try to bring our case to the American people. We have a war, and we have a humanitarian tragedy.
0: Sergio Aguayo of the Colegio de Mexico, thanks very much.
6: Thank you to you.
0: Here's one country that, surprisingly, did get mentioned in the debate.
7: Mali has been taken over, the northern part of Mali, by al-Qaeda-type individuals.
0: That's Mitt Romney just barely 60 seconds into the first answer of the night, mentioning the West African nation of Mali. Its democratically elected government was overthrown last March. The military that staged the coup said the president had failed to deal with an uprising in the north of Mali. That uprising has since morphed into something more dangerous Armed and extremist Muslim militias now control parts of the vast desert region that make up well over half the country. They've imposed Islamic or Sharia law in places like Timbuktu and Gao. Some say the militias are linked to al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb. Whatever their affiliation, they are ruthless. They've arrested thieves and punished them, chopping off their hands and arms. The militias have banned music. They have burned and destroyed ancient cultural artifacts in Timbuktu. Leaders throughout West Africa are left pondering whether they should or even could deploy intervention forces to help the Malian government bring things under control. Last night, Mitt Romney, not incorrectly, spoke of Mali in the context of the unsettled uprisings of the Arab Spring. Here's another of the four mentions of the country last night.
7: We want to make sure that we're seeing progress throughout the Middle East, with Mali now having North Mali taken over by al-Qaeda.
0: I got to say, I was surprised to hear Mali name-checked at all in the debate. Although, if you're in Europe, it's a completely different picture. Germany's foreign minister today said that Europe could help train up an African-led mission into Mali. Next month, journalists from all over the globe will be headed to the United States to cover the presidential election. I'll be going the other way because the election is an event that people everywhere have a stake in, even if they don't have a vote. I'll be talking with authors, protesters, bankers, and domestic workers from all over the globe living in London, what do you want to know from them? Drop me a tweet at Marco Werman and be sure to include the hashtag TheWorldVotes or head to theworld.org slash elections. This
1: is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach the public life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. Hi, Marco Werman. This is The World.
0: Latino Mormons are the fastest-growing group within the Mormon church. Between their religion and their generally conservative culture, you'd think Latino Mormons would almost automatically vote for Mitt Romney. But many in the community are torn between voting for a fellow Mormon and their dislike of his immigration policies. In the second of her two stories on Latino Mormons, Monica Campbell reports from Utah.
8: When Antonella Cecilia Packard left her home in Honduras for college in the U.S., she was a young Catholic. Then, through a friend, she met a family, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Packard knew little about Mormons beyond the stereotypes that they avoid smoking and coffee. But as an immigrant far from home, the family took her in, and they bonded. When I found out about the LDS faith, it just felt like I had come home. Today, Packard lives in Saratoga Springs, Utah, and feels even more at home. She's near a Spanish-speaking Mormon church with its towering steeple and manicured gardens. And there are others like it here and across the U.S. as Latinos become the church's fastest rising flock. But in Utah, some Latino Mormons are splitting from the state's deep Republican grain and moving away from fellow Mormon Mitt Romney. Immigration policies are driving the wedge, Packard says. If he's a saint like us, why doesn't he take a more charitable approach? It's an issue that for many here hits home. Just south of Salt Lake City, in Provo, (laughs) Miguel Antonio Lopez, a new father, is home from work. He's a U.S. citizen from Mexico City and has always voted Republican. But then in Utah, he met his wife, Laura. Laura also from Mexico City. We were both given the calling to interpret uh, and, from English to Spanish. And by and Spanish calling, he English. means
9: an assignment because yeah. everybody helps. Them. So
10: okay. we were like, oh, well, we kind of like each other. So <laughs> let's see. Well, let's get together and
8: see what happens. But Laura is undocumented. She crossed Mexico's desert by foot with her family when she was 12. Under Romney, they're unsure whether Lopez would be deported. That's scary. It's it's threatening our family.
10: Even when we mention our case to just friends, they say, well, what, well she's married to you. Doesn't that help? And to our surprise and to their surprise, it, it doesn't help. For somebody that, that crossed the border without any proper documentation, it's very difficult. President Obama seems a lot more open and supportive of us as a community.
8: Lopez represents the growing number of Latinos here backing Obama, But it's still Republican-heavy Utah. There are plenty of Latinos for Romney who say his immigration views fit the Mormon emphasis on rule of law. Marco Diaz chairs the Utah Republican Hispanic Assembly.
7: I don't believe that everything should be viewed under the lens of, was that going to separate him from
10: his family or not? If it does, then we cannot punish him. You need to assume some responsibility here. You did come here illegally to be able to say, "Shh, shh,
8: don't worry about it. Just overlook it. It's cool, because if you don't, then Hispanics are going to think you're anti-Hispanic. But Diaz may be a more lone voice as Latino Mormons and Democrats win political seats here. My name is Luz Robles. I'm a
11: state senator representing District 1 in the state of Utah, and I'm a Democrat.
8: Robles, born as a Mormon in Mexico, is running for a second term backed by a sizable Latino bloc. She's also pushed through immigration policies here guest worker permits, driver's licenses, and tuition breaks for immigrants that contrast hardline policies in neighboring Arizona. Policies that risk separating families don't fly as easily here. And I've heard people calling me, crying on the phone, saying, Help my neighbor. I didn't realize how much of a nightmare
11: there is behind this immigration system and how much we will only be hurting
8: families that is totally against what we believe as members of the LDS Church. The Mormon Church is outspoken on this, too. Although church officials declined an interview, saying they avoid politics, they sent a statement on immigration. It's a clear love-thy-neighbor anti-deportation stance. Ignacio Garcia, a history professor at Brigham Young University, explains what's driving the church's position.
1: Mormonism has always needed porous borders. People coming and going, coming so that they can be converted, going so that they take the gospel through other places.
8: And he adds another reality for the church. Conversion rates among white Americans are down.
1: Most churches are growing through immigrants. As I like to say, white folks don't like to convert anymore.
8: So no longer a homogenous religion... Garcia says the Mormon Church must distance itself from Romney's immigration policies, or risk decimating a growing Latino flock. For the world, I'm Monica Campbell in Provo, Utah.
0: You can hear Monica's first piece on the migration of Mormons to Mexico and back to the U.S. at theworld.org. We've also got pictures of the families' inner stories. I should say at theworld.org we've also got sounds. So see if you can recognize this sound. Okay, to me, this sounds like uh, somebody playing a kazoo in the rain.
11: Or someone singing in the rain, someone in an unusually good mood.
0: Yeah, I'll say it. That's the world science correspondent, Ritu Chatterjee. And Ritu, you're here to tell
11: us what that sound really is. Indeed, Marco. And it wasn't a human at all. That's a whale, a white whale, or a beluga oh named Nosi. And scientists think he was imitating the human voice.
0: Wow, a beluga whale imitating the human voice. That's incredible. So th- this beluga, this Nosi, who was or is he?
11: Well, his story is fascinating. In 1977, when Nosi was about three to four years old, he was captured off the coast of Canada by Inuit hunters and shipped off to a Navy research lab in San Diego where scientists were studying whale behavior they kept NOSI and two other belugas in enclosures at a pier, and they would often record whale calls. In 1984, when NOSI had been with the scientists for about seven years, the scientists thought they heard human voices in the the background of those recordings. And
0: those were the whales talking? Wait,
11: wait, Marco, you're getting ahead of the story. At the time, the researchers thought that they were hearing people talking at a neighboring pier, so they didn't Make much of it. But one day, some divers were doing experiments at the whale facility. They were communicating with their supervisors on land through underwater communication devices. And suddenly a diver surfaces and asks, who asked me to get out? <laughs> no one had, it seemed. And that's when they realized that it was one of the whales. Wow. From then on, the scientists started paying more and more attention to the whale sounds and realized that one of their three whales, no sea, would often switch his voice to sound like humans. And they were yeah they were never able to record him saying out out which according to the divers he said a lot but they were able to record him at other times singing or saying goodness knows what
0: So this seems like a really big deal is this the first beluga whale to imitate human speech
11: No Marco a beluga at the Vancouver aquarium is known to have said his name Legosi again and again but Nosi's human-like sounds was the first to be recorded by us and Sam Ridgway is one of the scientists who worked with NOSI for nearly 30 years. I spoke with him, and Ridgway thinks that NOSI wasn't as good an imitator of human sounds, say, like parrots, but he thought NOSI was trying pretty hard.
0: So, NOSI lived a happy long life, but we should say that he died about four years ago, so we may never learn what he was trying to say in that song.
11: That's right, Marco, but who knows? Another beluga might in the future give us some insight.
0: Ritu Chatterjee, the World Science Correspondent, thank you so much. Always good for you to stop by.
11: You're welcome, Marco.
0: We have No Seas, Human-Like Song, and other normal beluga calls. You can listen to them online at theworld.org. You're listening to The World from PRI, Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. Coming up, why climate change didn't come up during last night's presidential debate. And later, photographer meets
7: Antarctic penguins underwater. And all of a sudden, the distance, because it's so clear, you see these specks coming at you. And those are the penguins coming in from the open ocean. They've been at sea for three weeks. And I
1: thought that they were going to freak out. RIs The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach the public life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm
0: Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Today on the program, we are shining a spotlight on what was missing from last night's presidential debate on foreign policy, and one of the most glaring omissions was any mention of climate change. As our environment editor Peter Thompson reminded us earlier, climate change is creating a raft of potentially destabilizing problems around the world, yet there's been barely a peep about it in this year's campaign – Journalist Mark Hertzgard covers climate change and the global environment for The Nation and Vanity Fair, among others, and is the author of the book, Hot, Living Through the Next 50 Years on Earth. And Mark, what do you think is going on here? Why this loud silence on climate and last night's debate and really the whole campaign?
4: Yeah, you're certainly putting your finger on it, Marco. And it's, I think it's important for people to realize how unusual this is. This is the first time since 1984... Almost 30 years ago, that climate change has not been mentioned in any of the presidential and vice presidential debates. All these other years, it was recognized as a major issue. And this year, nothing. You know, I'm I'm reminded of a quote from uh, the British magazine The Economist, which wrote last year, That 100 years from now, the only important question about our historical moment will be, quote, whether or not we did anything to arrest climate change, unquote.
0: Mm. And and it's really hard to imagine the two candidates aren't making the connections themselves. So you remind us, uh, what are the major threats that climate change poses to U.S. and global security?
4: The United States is an agricultural superpower. We heard a lot last night about its military superpower and its economic uh, importance. We are also an agricultural superpower, and we just came through the worst drought in 50 years, the hottest summer ever in the uh, farm belt. Our corn and soybean yields way, way down. We are already seeing prices rise around the world. And what that's going to mean is if you're a child and poor in Africa or Asia, a much greater chance of hunger and food riots. That's the direct security connection. You know, the last time that food prices were this high in 2007, 2008, we had anywhere from 20 to 30 countries that had street riots. And that is why, for example, the Pentagon, under the administration of George W. Bush, said that climate change was a major national security issue because by the year 2020, when we've got these kinds of droughts and floods and so forth, we could even see countries like Pakistan and India and China going to war to secure river valleys and arable land.
0: So, Mark, what is the one question you would have asked the two candidates last night if you'd been with them on the stage in, in Florida?
4: I would have said, uh, Governor Romney and President Obama, you are both parents. What are you going to do to protect our kids from climate change?
0: Right. Now take political rhetoric out of uh, the candidates' responses. Uh, Imagine for us what kind of answer you would have heard.
4: Well, we know what we would have heard from Governor Romney. He would have said that... uh, we don't know if climate change is really happening. The scientists aren't clear about it. He has backtracked on that in keeping with uh, the new Republican doctrine. As far as Mr. Obama, I think he probably would have said, we are dealing with it. This is why we have to invest in clean energy. You know, and that's good as far as it goes, but it is so lacking in a commensurate scale to the degree of the problem. The rest of the world are frantic to get a solution to this, and they know that the real obstacle is in Washington. And yet, we have not got any kind of a consensus inside of Washington that this issue even matters, much less that it must be taken care of.
0: Journalist Mark Hirsgaard, the author of the book, Hot Living Through the Next 50 Years on Earth. He's also one of the organizers of Climate Parents, a campaign to enlist parents in the effort to move the political debate on climate change. Mark, thanks for speaking with us.
4: My pleasure, Marker.
0: You can hear more of our interview with Mark Hertzgard at theworld.org. Climate change and the environment are personal issues for Canadian Paul Nicklin. He began his career as a biologist tracking polar bears. Now he's a wildlife photographer. He just won the prestigious Veolia Environment Wildlife Photographer of the Year Award. It's for a picture he took underwater of emperor penguins bursting through a hole in the ice off Antarctica. You can see it at theworld.org. Nicklin says he had early training for working in the cold.
7: When I was four years old, my parents moved from Saskatchewan to a tiny Inuit community on the southern end of Baffin Island, up by Greenland. And we lived with, uh, I think in the community, there were 190 Inuit people. The ice and the snow were my sandbox. And I mean, I fell through the ice as a kid. I, you know, went under under the ice into the water and able to pull myself out. And as an adult now, when I'm up on the ice, I'm so comfortable. I can read the ice, understand the ice, I'm... You know, I feel like I'm with the Inuit out there. You know, or I'm one of them. So that it's—I've been very lucky with my upbringing, which gave me the foundation to do what I do today.
0: What he does is photograph nature very
7: close up, like when he got that shot of the penguins. The best way to to get this shot was to go in the water just with a snorkel, so there's no bubble, there's nothing, you know, no no noise. Take my legs and I would lock them underneath the ice, and I'd lock them into the ice. And then I wouldn't move for sometimes an hour. And you'd wait, and you wait, and you're freezing, and there's nothing to see. There's nothing to see. And all of a sudden, the distance, because it's so clear, you see these specks coming at you. And those are the penguins coming in from the open ocean. They've been at sea for three weeks. And I thought that they were going to freak out. And they came in very nervous at first. I mean, they come in very curious of what you are. But within a second, they know that you're not a threat. I had emperor penguins that, wait. 30 kilos, sitting on top of my head. I had them on my back. I had them jumping on my back to get onto the ice. And I had them in, in this picture that won. I mean, that's a, an emperor penguin that's floating. It's actually leaning, resting against the side of my head. As I'm floating there, it's floating against my head. So I actually used it to frame the picture. I could use it as a piece of art. It's sitting there looking at me, preening itself. And then all the other penguins started coming in. And, you know, it's just a matter of shooting a lot of pictures and watching the moment unfold. Paul Nicklin says he wants to do more than just make pretty pictures. I used to be a scientist. I'm a biologist by training. And I love biology I'm, and, and I love photography. But I felt helpless as a biologist. I Biology wasn't allowing me to communicate. We would go out and tag so many polar bears, come back with data sheets, and we were ineffective. So I thought if I could only bridge the gap between good science, important science, and the public by using photography to tell a story that will really resonate with people... It's about telling stories. We need journalism. You know, we, we, right now with the, the current state of the planet, um, you know, if, if we are just shooting pretty pictures, then we're just fiddling while Rome burns. We need to be doing conservation-driven stories. We need to be at least doing stories that have a message or have a story or are educating people. And, and I think that's what excites me the most about this, about being a photographer is being a storyteller more so than just taking pretty pictures.
0: Canadian nature photographer Paul Nicklin. See his prize-winning photo, Bubble Jetting Emperors, at theworld.org. Today's GeoQuiz is inspired by this memorable debate moment.
1: I think Governor Romney maybe uh, hasn't spent enough time looking at how our military works. You, You mentioned the Navy, for example, and that we have fewer ships than we did in 1916. Well, Governor, we also have fewer horses and bayonets, because the nature of our military has changed.
0: Horses and bayonets. Those words weren't on anyone's debate bingo card last night. What we want to know is where were bayonets first invented, at least according to legend. We're back with the answer and more on the role of bayonets in the military in just a bit. Meanwhile, here's a film clip to set the mood. It's from the classic 1964 war movie Zulu, starring Michael Caine.
8: Company will fix bayonets.
0: At ease. (laughs) From Obama's bayonets to Romney's binders, we've heard so much about the two candidates, we may think we know them pretty well, but perhaps we just know their political personas. In the world of espionage, by contrast, personality is often totally fictionalized. No need to guess how much of the persona is real. But what of Stella Remington, real-life spy boss and the inspiration for a character in James Bond movies? Here's the world's Patrick Cox.
10: Once upon a time, Stella Remington was working anonymously for Britain's MI5, living, on the face of it, a normal life, married, two daughters. Most of the time, it was easy enough to conceal what she did, but not always.
12: You get invited, obviously, to your neighbour's Christmas drinks, and you have to work out what you're going to say for the evening, because the first question anybody asks you when you go into a party is, what do you do?
10: Remington had a couple of answers for that. She'd say she worked for a cosmetics company or for the Ministry of Defence, procuring boots, presumably military ones. Quite often, though, she'd then get introduced to people who actually worked in the cosmetics or footwear industry. That was difficult, she says.
12: Which is why, really, people tend to avoid the kind of ordinary social contacts that most people take for granted. And then you get this You know, slightly closed world, which is not necessarily a very
10: good thing. But it wasn't exactly a relief when she became director general of MI5 and the government decided that for the first time, the head of the spy agency should be named publicly.
12: Unfortunately, because I was a woman, this dramatic announcement became more dramatic because, of course, the media and most of their readers thought that our intelligence services were run by men. Men
10: who look like James Bond or George Smiley, Remington says. Fictional men. Remington soon posed for the media cameras as if to dispel the fiction. But then she got caught up again in make-believe. She became the model for M, head of the Bond movie version of MI5. Many people think actress Judy Dench is Stella Remington, or the other way round.
8: I report to the Prime Minister, and even he's smart enough not to ask me what we do. Have you ever seen such a bunch of self-righteous, arse-covering prigs? They don't care what we do, they care what we get photographed doing. And how the hell could
10: Bond be so stupid? Dench is back playing M in the upcoming Bond movie Skyfall. Not to be outdone, Rimmington has just completed her seventh novel, featuring a female British spy. And Rimmington doesn't mind projecting an exaggerated, even fictional persona at social occasions.
12: People regard you with a certain degree of caution because they don't know what you know. And I remember going to a dinner shortly after I retired, And I was sitting at a table with some very senior British businessmen and the ambassador of a former Soviet bloc country. And he suddenly announced to the entire table, she knows the names of all my mistresses.
10: Remington enjoyed the looks of panic around the table. And though she had no information about that ambassador's private life, she chose not to set the record straight. More fun than claiming to work in cosmetics, even if it was just as much
0: of a fantasy. For The World, I'm Patrick Cox. It's time now to fix bayonets and answer today's geo-quiz, prompted by President Obama's comment last night about horses and bayonets. We checked out where bayonets come from. Well, here with the answer and to discuss that part of the debate is the world's news editor and resident history buff, Chris Wolfe.
2: So, Chris... Where are bayonets from? Well, there's nothing definitively documented, but the um, city of Bayonne, not the one in New Jersey, the one in uh, France, the mm. original Bayonne, claims to um, have created it in the early 17th century um, as a, you know, a classic uh, weapon for uh, infantry. And that's where the name bayonet comes from, from Bayonne, France. That's right. And just what is a bayonet? Remind us. Well, let's take a look. I have one uh, here. Um, He did get through the security gate. This is one of mine. Um, In my copious spare time, I'm a Revolutionary War reenactor. And this is a classic bayonet from the age of horse and musket. An 18-inch triangular British bayonet Right, fits on the end of your musket. And on the
0: bottom is kind of a little handle, but it actually is a tube that then goes, as you said, over the musket. Well, if you've seen the
2: old light bulb, it's a bayonet socket, which is where the word comes from.
0: Oh, no kidding. So it just
2: clunks on, clunks down, and then it's in place, locked in. Uh, ready to impale your enemies.
0: Now, you're a Revolutionary War reenactor, but I'm uh, assuming that uh, they're not so obsolete, actually.
2: Well, yes and no. In an age of cruise missiles and drones, obviously, they get very limited use. But for um, soldiers who call themselves door kickers, those are actually going into... Uh, confront the enemy in a house or clearing operation. uh, They're still quite popular. Uh, They can still provide a heavy intimidation role. And also as a weapon of last resort. In fact, just last month, a young fellow from my old regiment, the Princess of Wales Regiment, uh, back in the UK, uh, was given the Military Cross, Britain's second highest gallantry award for leading a bayonet charge just a year ago in Helmand in Afghanistan. Corporal Sean Jones, Pinned down um, with his patrol in the in a nasty spot, they're stuck in a ditch, running out of ammunition. Uh, so he has uh, half his men pouring covering fire and leads the others in this desperate dash across 80 yards of open ground to drive away the enemy and get away. Um, so uh, even today, you know, if you're cornered and in a ditch, it seems like a useful thing to have. Still has a use. Now,
0: uh, one other thing that uh, President Obama mentioned in his line about bayonets was horses. So what What about
2: horses? Still used? Well, a lot more obsolete, yes, to be fair. Uh, really, since the um, age of barbed wire and machine guns, there's been a limited role for horses on the battlefield, but not totally gone. Obviously, there's a ceremonial role. Um, but then uh, special forces in Afghanistan, US special forces uh, had three teams of um, horse-mounted soldiers in Afghanistan in the early stages of the invasion. And I myself saw horses being used by the... Uh, in the Afghanistan, in the last war there, a little over twenty years ago, there was a great patrol. I can see it now. Uh, this valley we were in was about a mile wide and uh, evenly spaced through the entire length of the valley uh, it was about forty Mujahideen warriors, all on horseback on these little shaggy ponies. The autumn sun beating down in the valley, by the uh, little square adobe mud brick huts. Um, each one's on his back has got his AK or an RPG, and they're. You know, it was just such a, uh, a mind-blowing sight to see. That would have been 1991. And, and yes, and, of course, let's not forget um, the U.S. Marines reintroduced the Mule in 2009. That's half horse for carrying um, mm. loads where horse, uh, vehicles can't. Um, so, you know, still practical purposes today. Saddle up and ride the world's news editor, Chris Wolfe. Thank you so much. You're welcome.
0: You can see Chris and his friends with their muskets and bayonets getting charged by horses at a reenactment this past weekend. These guys are serious. That's at theworld.org.
1: This is PRI. PRI's The World is supported by WGBH and Nova Science Now. How does someone become a genius? Is it all in the DNA, or does it come with hard work? Can it be that everyone has untapped genius? Nova Science Now's How Smart Can We Get? Wednesday night at 10, 9 Central on PBS.
0: I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Turmoil isn't good for business, and there's been plenty of turmoil in the Middle East over the past two years. But in the midst of dictators falling, economic uncertainty and fiery protests, an unlikely group is thriving, women entrepreneurs. Tara Todras-Whitehill reports from Jordan.
9: Pieces of silk fabric fly around the room. Elegantly beaded traditional dresses are steamed wrinkle-free. First Bazaar, an online shopping site for women, is doing a fashion shoot for one of their designers, Abaya Modern. Jordanian sisters Hanan and Linda Halak launched First Bazaar last March. It wouldn't seem like a good time to start a company in the middle of a regional uprising. But Hanan says the Arab Spring has been surprisingly good for business. Actually, it was a solution because a lot of people are afraid to go out from their homes in certain times. This is a solution for the women and everybody. The wave of revolutions that swept the Middle East has brought with it uncertainty, even fear, of what might happen on the streets. So people are increasingly shopping online. And women entrepreneurs are taking advantage of this venture capital firms are noticing the trend.
5: They're proving to
3: be twice as successful as their male peers in attracting our investment.
9: That's Osama Fayad. He runs Oasis 500, a startup incubator in Jordan. His company decides which startups to support after putting them through what he calls business boot camp. And Fayad says a lot of the success stories these days are women.
3: If you look at the statistics, around 20-22% of the attendees of the boot camp are women. But here's what's interesting is, of those, compared to their peers, around 38%, almost 40% of our investments are in companies that are led by women.
9: Bayad says because the glass ceiling is so much lower in the Middle East, women are looking for ways to be their own boss. So they're turning to the internet. Abir Kamsaya, founder of the consulting firm Better Business Jordan, believes that the Arab Spring has given women the confidence to succeed in business. Because women now can see that they can make a difference. When they see Facebook, Twitter, and all the social media aids. they can believe that they have a say and that their opinion counts. And that's why they are more involved, more interested in this sector. In fact, women entrepreneurs have become a hot topic in the Middle East. A conference was held recently in Jordan just for women.
10: Today, we're going to focus on leadership Uh, governance, social progress, responsible entrepreneurship.
9: But no matter how creative or entrepreneurial women are, the Middle East is still a conservative place. And the reality is that women need the moral support of their families to succeed. Fida Tahar started Zaytuna.com, an online video cooking site, a year ago. I am lucky my parents were very supportive, yes. Mm -hmm. I think my mother is an entrepreneur. She's
10: always been a working mom and she was an inspiration to me. I would like to set an example for
9: my daughter. But there are still many that view women in traditional roles. As if to highlight the difficulties for women, Muhammad Salah expresses a sentiment that is now seen as taboo in the States. The host of Islamic television shows says it's fine for women to join the workforce as long as it doesn't interfere with their jobs as wives and mothers.
13: Somebody has to stay at home to take care of the kids, wait for them when they come back from school and study with them and so on. So if if a woman doesn't have these uh, commitments and she has a free time, no no problem.
9: But opinions like his are becoming less common, and women are gaining ground in the business world. And they hope their increasing business clout will give them political influence as well. For The World, I'm Tara Todris Whitehill in Amman.
0: Finally today, we introduce you to a singer dubbed The Voice of Angola, by our guest DJ, Tom Schnabel.
3: Aldemir Bastos was born in Portuguese Angola in 1954. His parents were both nurses. He was forced into exile in Portugal during the post-independent civil war between the, the Marxist MPLA and the Western-backed Unito. But despite all the hardships and tragedy in his life, one of his sons was killed in a Lisbon club. Rudenberg also embraces beauty and positivity in his music. His whole album is like one big affirmation of everything that's beautiful in life. I want to start with the uh, opening track with the London Symphony Orchestra called "Embiri Embiri." The song praises honesty, justice, and truth, and against really everything that is false and, and shallow and bad in life. <laughs>
13: Bongo Jamie, Watambulowanga, Bibulazy, Birimbiri, Bongo Jamie, birimbiri. Bongo Jamie, Watambulowanga, Bibulazé, Birimbiri, Bongo Jamie.
3: The song is called Embiri, Embiri, featuring the London Symphony Orchestra. The singer is Waldemar Bastos, an Angolan artist who has been making records occasionally for a while. He actually came out first on a David Byrne compilation called Afropia Three, telling stories to the sea, which was a compilation of artists from Cape Verde, Guinea-Bissau, Angola, and Mozambique. There's another song on Waldemar Bastos' new album called Humbi Humbi Yangwe, and this song basically says that it's fundamental to elevate our spirit to be basically whole and happy people. The artist is Waldemar Bastos. His new album is called Classics of My Soul. I remember years ago, though he was almost unknown, I was involved in bringing Waldemar Bastos to the Hollywood Bowl in a Lusophone or Portuguese language show and with just a four-piece band he completely blew the entire audience away not because he was loud or because he did anything really fancy but just because the sort of almost unconscious deeper spirit in his music and that comes across on this album as well it's a celebration of everything that's good about music and about life and uh, I just am completely blown away I love this record and I think you will too
13: Vem ver o pôr do sol na minha terra Beber da beleza da mãe, natureza Vem ver o pôr do sol na minha terra Beber da beleza da mãe, natureza Ver o sol a se esconder Para lá do horizonte onde Deus mora
0: Music by Angola's Valdemar Bastos, chosen for us by Tom Schnabel, music programmer at station KCRW in Santa Monica, California. You can watch a short video on the making of the album Classics of My Soul at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. We're back tomorrow.
1: The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH, supported in part by the Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems, online at ritaallen.org, and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI, Public Radio International.